Hello, I am Walt Hickey, and this is a podcast version of the Numlock Sunday edition. If you enjoy this, have feedback, or would like more of this kind of thing, let me know. My guest this week is Alex Davies. He's a journalist and the author of the book Driven, The Race to Create the Autonomous Car, which is out in stores today. Here we go. Alex Davies, you are the author of the brand new book, Driven, The Race to Create the Autonomous Car. Uh, You cover all about transportation, you cover all about vehicles, and you've also covered a lot about the technology that goes into them. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about driverless cars recently. You talk about how this is a really long journey. How far back have we been working on driverless cars? I think the people first started talking about the driverless car right around the time people came up with the car itself. (laughs) (laughs) The car, a great invention for all sorts of reasons, but one thing people noticed very quickly was that when you got rid of the horse, you got rid of the sentient being that would stop you from driving off a cliff or into a wall. If you, the human uh, driver, stopped paying attention So you see these stories from the 20s and 30s of people coming up with ways of of remote controlling cars using radio waves. In the 50s, you start seeing programs from like General Motors and RCA working on embedding electric strips into the road, which obviously didn't work for various reasons, (laughs) um, that would help guide a car along the highway. Um, you see examples from the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs in New York where GM is talking about, oh, like cars that will drive themselves and you'll have these things like air traffic controllers saying, okay, your car is clear to go into like self-driving mode or back then they would have used the word autonomous. So the, the idea itself is really old, but Technologically, I think you've got to date this work from the from the seventies, eighties, nineties. That's when you first start seeing the technology that undergirds the way we think about building self-driving cars today, which is not by following any kind of radio path or nothing built into the infrastructure in the system, but the basic idea of giving the car the tools it needs to drive itself the way a human operates a car. You know, you've got three basic buckets. One is you have to recreate a, a human senses. So that's where you see things like cameras, radars, LIDAR senses, giving the car the ability to see the world around it. You have to replace um, wh- uh, what a human's arms and legs do, uh, or hands and feet, really. Um, and those are just kind of servo motors that built into the car that give the car the ability to turn the steering wheel or pump the gas and brakes uh, and actually, in today's cars, that's all done purely over software. It's not even really mechanical in there anymore. And then the last, the really tricky thing is how do you replace the human's brain? The the step between the senses and um, actually carrying out the decisions you need to make. I start my story with the 2004 DARPA Grand Challenge. I give a little bit of the history of the robotics and artificial intelligence research that happened before it. But for me, the grand challenge is really the starting point. That's when DARPA, which is that really kooky arm of the Pentagon that 
is basically charged with making sure the U.S. government is never surprised on the technological front again. It came out of the Soviets launching Sputnik, which really shocked the Americans to hell. They're like, okay, we need an an arm of the military that's just going to do the kooky kind of far out stuff. So DARPA, a lot of big hits, the internet, GPS, stealth bombers, some not so great moments. Um, DARPA was instrumental to the creation of Agent Orange. Whoops. Yeah, no, don't want to do that one. (laughs) (laughs) That one, not not so nice. Well, they're not all hits. They're not all hits and that's okay. Um, I feel like, so again, like we are friends. Uh, We have been friends for a while now. Uh, I feel like you have told me the story of the 2004 DARPA Grand Challenge many times as this like deeply formative event in just not only like, like self-driving cars, but also kind of like robotics and Silicon Valley and, and how government can work on different things. Do you want to go into what went into creating this event and kind of what happened at it, which I feel like is a very, very cool story that I imagine is a solid chunk of the book. It is a solid chunk of the book. It's also personally my favorite kind part of the book to me, this really the heart of the story. Um, so DARPA was tasked with helping the U S military develop autonomous vehicles. And the basic thinking there was that, you know, a way a lot of soldiers get hurt, especially in the early 2000s, as we're starting to get mired down in these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, We wanted autonomous vehicles so soldiers didn't have to be in vehicles that were being hit by IEDs, you know, so you could send cars by themselves on convoys and dangerous missions. And basically it was to save the lives of the troops. DARPA had been funding all sorts of research into autonomous driving uh, for decades by this point. And the guy running it, DARPA director Tony Tether, was frustrated that he just wasn't seeing the kind of progress he wanted to see. It just felt like one eternal research project after another. So he said, do you know what? DARPA had at the time a relatively new power to give out prize money. And he could give out up to a million dollars without needing congressional approval. So he created a thing he called the DARPA Grand Challenge with a $1 million first prize. It was a race for autonomous vehicles across the Mojave Desert in California. It would go from this like real dusty little town called Barstow in the California Mojave Desert um, just across the line to, uh, to Prim, Nevada, which is pretty sad town because it's like the closest it's the least driving you have to do from california to legally gamble in a casino <laughs> like if you're like i don't have the energy to drive the extra 45 minutes to las vegas you go to prim oh no <laughs> <laughs> and so tether's original idea just very briefly was it's like we're gonna have the cars go from from los angeles to the las vegas strip and they'll go on the freeway and the guy at DARPA was actually in charge of putting this race together. I was like, that is completely insane. Like, you can't do any of that. These robots don't work. We don't even know what they're going to look like. <laughs> so they ended up doing it in the desert, which made more sense for the military application. Anyway, when you think about sure. what driving in the middle East would be like, but the key part of the challenge was that it was open to anybody. This was not just Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Carnegie Mellon university, the big contractors, had been doing this kind of work, Tony Taylor just said, anybody who can build a self-driving car will bring them all to the desert and we'll do this big race. And so you see this like (laughs) range of characters who come into this. Um, I think foremost among them, interestingly, is Anthony Lewandowski, 
who at the time is just about 23 years old. He's a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and he decides he really wants to be in this because he loves robotics, um, even though he doesn't have a ton of robotics training. He's like, I'm going to build a self-driving motorcycle. So that's his idea. You got the big players like Carnegie Mellon, and that's where Chris Urmson, who becomes Anthony Lewandowski's great rival once they're both at Google years later. These teams where Chris Urmson is a big player, Carnegie Mellon is like the robotics powerhouse in the world, probably the best roboticist in the world, and had been doing tons and tons of self-driving research over the decades. They field a team that is like the powerhouse of a team, and you've got this guy, Red Whitaker, who's the who's the old roboticist there. And <laughs> this is amazing. I've been yelled at by Red Whitaker more times than I care to remember. <laughs> really? He's just very cantankerous. He's an ex-Marine. He's now like 70 years old, but he's still, he's well over six feet. He's 250 pounds. The guy's built like a redwood and he's just <laughs> always yelling. I mean, and he's always yelling. Building robots, it's, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, and he builds robots. Someone pointed this out to me once. He builds robots that look like him, in a sense. They're always these <laughs> enormous, hulking things. And for the Grand Challenge, they build this Humvee. Um, and Red Whitaker <laughs> told me, he has this penchant for saying like really bombastic things that sound crazy and don't actually make any sense. So he once told someone, you know, this, this project... It's like a freight train. You've just got to grab on and it'll <laughs> rip your arms off. <laughs> it sounds I, terrible. The guy who told me this is like, what, is that? what does that even mean? But he has this incredible talent for really um, developing young engineers. And I think Chris Armson is among his many protégés who are now pushing this technology into the world. Um. And so you have this a collection of wacky racers gathering exactly. to win a million dollars from the defense department in the desert. And, and like the first, the first one is 2004. What happens at the first one? It is a disaster. The 2004 DARPA grand challenge is supposed to be a 142 mile race through the desert. 15 teams get out of a qualifying round and make it to the, to the final round. Um, the qualifying, if you looked at the qualifying, it's like vehicles were like, smoking and shaking or they couldn't even start at all or they were just driving into every last thing um and then the the race in the desert itself wasn't all that much better it got off to a great start carnegie mellon's humvee sandstorm was first off the line it like shoots off into the desert so it's doing okay the first couple of vehicles get off the line okay and then you get through the bottom half of the field and it's just it becomes a comedy of errors. You've got one little bathtub shaped thing that goes up onto like the tiny ridge on the side, just on the side of the trail where the, it's raised. And it goes up that and flips over and lands upside down. You've got one that drives 50 yards out, does an inexplicable U-turn and drives back to the starting line. <laughs> You've got one, like one just like veers off road, like through barbed wire and then can't find its way back. You've got this thing from Oshkosh that's like a 14-ton military truck, like a six-wheeled thing. It's lime green. And it's they make tanks, right? A, a tumbleweed, like a bush thing in front of it. And its detection system says, this is an unmovable obstacle. It's <laughs> to reverse. But then like another tumbleweed shows up behind it. 
And so it just starts like going forward and backward and forward and backward, like Austin Powers trying to turn <laughs> his little cart around. And so this thing, and then even Carnegie Mellon's vehicle, which is doing well and is seven miles into the race, is going around a hairpin turn. It goes off the edge of the road a little bit and it gets hung up on this rock. It gets basically um, stranded like a whale on a beach. It's um, it's raised up to the point um, where its wheels can't get any traction anymore. The robot brain doesn't know this and it's just spinning its wheels, spinning its wheels at full speed until like the rubber is on fire and smoke is <laughs> pouring off this thing. And DARPA has to show up like from a helicopter. They hop out of the helicopter with fire extinguishers. And, uh, it, it's a complete disaster. Um, and the thing that DARPA had really hyped up, they're like, this is like, this is the new innovation. We're going to save the lives of all these troops. And so then uh, reporters come after Tony Tether and they're like, what do you, he, he meets them. He meets the reporters who are waiting at the end line, at the finish line, which is roughly, it's a 142 mile race. And the finish line is 130 miles away from the closest car, <laughs> given where it finished. Because Carnegie Mellon did the best. It went 7.4 miles. Um, Anthony Lewandowski's motorcycle makes it into the, into the final round, mostly as a stunt. It did horribly in qualifying, but the DARPA guys are like, this thing is so crazy. It really embodies the spirit of what we're trying to do. So let's just bring it to the race anyway. It's not like it can win. Its gas tank doesn't hold enough gas for it to go all the way to the finish line. Um, so Anthony brings it up, brings it up to the starting line, hands it off to a DARPA guy who kind of holds its hand on, holds his hand on it until it goes. Motorcycle starts going. He takes his hand off, and motorcycle instantly falls to the ground. <laughs> um, Anthony had forgotten to turn on the. Um, the stabilizing software system before it started. That, that'll get you. That'll that'll get you. And so uh, one of his lessons for the next year was make a checklist. <laughs> the, uh, the cool thing about this is that again, like by a, an utter fiasco, uh, it's how you always tell it. But then like everybody who was there for this fiasco, like they stuck around and they went in many ways to kind of form the current like self-driving industry and which is like gone to a whole new degree of sophistication as, as you write about and as you've covered for the past few years, do you kind of want to talk about like that, that seed, what, what it has turned into since? Yeah. So very quickly, what's, what's great about the grand challenge is that it brings all these people together and it pits them against this problem that everyone had kind of dismissed as impossible. And so what happens was DARPA does the 2005 grand challenge 18 months later um, and the 18 months really proves to be the difference in that um, teams that weren't ready at all for the grand challenge for the original one um, are ready 18 months later. They've learned much more about how this works. And so the 2005 race is a huge success. Uh, Stanford, led by Sebastian Throne, comes in, takes first place, Carnegie Mellon second. Five teams finish this big race through the desert. Then DARPA follows it up with the 2007 grand challenge or urban challenge, sorry. Which, um, which pits the vehicles against a, a little mock city where they have people driving around and all of a sudden they have to deal with um, traffic and stop signs and parking lots and all of this stuff. So it becomes much more, um, sorry, what you really get from the, from the urban challenge is the sense that this technology seems suddenly very possible. And by 2007, 
this is a big media event. It's like hosted by the guys who did Mythbusters and Larry Page is there and he brings in, he shows up in his private plane full of Google execs and he's like, look at this future of technology. So two years later or about a year later, Larry Page wants to build self-driving cars. He decided this is actually something he'd looked at as like an undergraduate or a graduate student. And then his thesis advisor said, well, how about you focus on internet search instead? And that's what he ended up doing, and it worked out pretty well. It worked, it worked out okay, I think, right? <laughs> I, I think he did fine. That's what I've heard. Um, and, but he decided, he's like, I want to get back to self-driving cars. He'd been at the Urban Challenge. He'd been like, I can see how far this technology has come. So what he did was he, he went to Sebastian Thrun, who had led Stanford's team through the challenges and was already working at Google. He was a big part of making Street View happen along with Anthony Lewandowski, who Thrun had, had met through the challenges. And he's like, oh, this guy's nuts, but he's really talented and he's a real go-getter. So he brings him on to help him do Street View. And when Larry Page says, okay, now build me a self-driving car, Sebastian Thrun says, okay, well, I happen to know like the 12 best people in the world at this technology. I met basically all of them through the, through the DARPA challenges. So he has this meeting at his chalet in Lake Tahoe uh, um, at the end of 2008. And he brings together like a dozen people and it's Anthony Lewandowski and it's Chris Urmson and then people like Brian Selesky names that are now really the top tier in self-driving cars. And he says, Google is going to build a self-driving car. We're going to have something that looks a whole lot like a blank check. And like, I want this team to be the one to do it. And that becomes Project Chauffeur. They become this really secretive project within, within Google. They go forth over the next couple of years. They make this incredible progress in self-driving cars. And this is the story of the second half of the book is how this team comes together and then how they ultimately come apart because as soon as they have to start thinking about how to make a product, how to commercialize this technology, and they start in the reality of money and, and power within the team become real um, wedge issues within them. You see rivalries within the team, especially between Ermson and Lewandowski, who are fighting for control and fighting for the direction of the team. So ultimately things kind of break apart. And what you see over time is as people leave and as this technology starts to look a lot more real, everyone splinters off to do their own thing. And this is what I call like Google's self-driving diaspora. Chris Ermson leaves to start Aurora. Brian Selesky leaves to start Argo. Dave Ferguson and Cha Zhanzu leave to start Neuro. And these people, and Don Burnett still leaves to start Kodiak. And Anthony Lewandowski, of course, leaves to start Auto, which is acquired by Uber, which is the genesis of the Uber Waymo huge self-driving lawsuit. A considerable amount of litigation that I believe is ongoing to this day, yes. <laughs> so the litigation did end, fortunately for everyone but the lawyers, I think. Um, Uber, Uber and Waymo ultimately settled. And then weirdly, about a year after that, the Department of Justice charged Lewandowski with criminal trade secret theft, to which he ultimately pled guilty. And a few months ago, he was sentenced to 18 months in prison, but he will not start his sentence until the pandemic is over. Well, uh, so 
it definitely seems like that this is still very much seen as the start of something. And and you have covered a lot of this industry. I know that there has actually been some news recently that we were talking a little bit before we went on mic about uh, what's been going on in self-driving cars. Wh- what's kind of the state of the art now and, and where, where are things kind of moving forward? Well, fortunately for the industry, all of these like, personal rivalries, I think, have largely cooled off. And I think the book is really a history of how this got started and how these people pulled this technology forward and then kind of came apart at the seams. Um, But now what you've got is something that looks a little bit like a mature industry. So you have Waymo with its program in the Arizona suburbs of Phoenix is starting to really take the safety drivers out of its car in earnest. Cruise, uh, which is also a focus of the book, which is part of GM and also backed by Honda, is moving to take the safety drivers out of its cars in San Francisco, a much more dynamic environment as it moves to start a self-driving system there. Self-driving trucks are looking much more serious than ever before. Uh, Argo AI, which is partnered with Ford and Volkswagen, is moving towards starting a taxi service, a robo-taxi service in Miami. What you're seeing now, you know, I talk about the, um, the Gartner hype cycle where I think from like 2014 to 2017 or so, we were really in the um, um, at like peak hype, like uh, totally inflated expectations where everyone said, you know, your kids will never have to learn how to drive. Chris Ermson is out there saying, my 12-year-old son, you know, will never have to learn to drive a car. I'm pretty sure the kid's got his learner's permit now. <laughs> um, you know, like those inflated expectations burst a little bit as people realize just how hard this technology is. But I think where we are now on that Gartner hype cycle is on what's called the the slope of enlightenment, where people are getting more serious. People have, even if they haven't cracked the problem yet, I think they have a really good sense of what it takes to crack the problem, which it turns out is a lot of time, an incredible amount of money, and at least 1,000 very talented engineers. Yeah, whole lot of lasers, you know, a very sympathetic governmental oversight structure in a suburb of Phoenix. Like, you know, the, the, you, you, we have the ingredients for, for the solution, right? You can make it work. And so, you know, I'm I'm still optimistic about it. I still think like the technology can do a lot of good. And you're seeing, I think what people are figuring out is how to right size this technology. People are figuring out how to actually apply self-driving cars in a realistic way. And I think one of the cooler projects out there are companies that are working on making self-driving shuttle cars for like senior living communities. These big areas in Arizona and, and Florida that cover like a thousand acres and where people need to get around but can't necessarily drive anymore and where the driving environment is pretty calm, that's a great use case. So the trick right now is to figure out where where you can make the technology work. And then the next question will be, where can you actually make money off of this? And that one I'm less bullish on because the economics of this, I think, are going to be pretty tough to crack. I mean, kind of, t- we're going to, we're closing in on the end of this one, but like, you know, DARPA seeded a little bit of the initial funds, it seems, for a lot of this research. Are the, is that a, is that still an application that people are looking into? Are like, and, you know, getting folks off the road in places that are dangerous? You know, like the army is, is still working on that. And I think those projects are still ongoing. But the initial push for DARPA was um, a line in a, in a congressional funding bill from 2000, from the end of, of 2000. It was one of the last things Clinton signed into law. And it mandated that by 2015, one third of all 
ground vehicles in the U.S. military be unmanned, which was <laughs> completely insane. How do we do? What's the no, I, I don't. I mean, maybe we've got like three vehicles, not like <laughs> one out of three vehicles. You know, it really, um, that stuff hasn't panned out so much. Um, but one of my favorite things, one of the first people I managed to track down for this book was the guy, the congressional staffer who got that line into the bill. Um, oh and God. I told him, I was like, oh, I'm researching this and I want to think, I just want to ask you about like, why you put that in there and like what your thinking was. And he goes, huh, did something come of that? <laughs> that's amazing. I was like, yeah, you know, an industry that's predicted to be worth $7 trillion. And what also came of it is driven the race to create the autonomous car by Alex Davies. Alex, where can people find the book? Where can people find you? What is your, you know, quick 20 second plug for this, uh, for this particular book? So you can find this book, basically anywhere online. It's available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your regular booksellers. It's out in hardcover January 5th. You can also get the audiobook. You can get it on Kindle. Um, get it however you like. I just hope you enjoy it. Awesome. And then you are on the internet at, uh, what's your Twitter account these days? <laughs> my Twitter handle is adavies47. Uh, you can find some of my work on Business Insider where uh, I am the senior editor for our transportation desk. Ah, excellent website. Very, very good website. We're all pro of that website. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, that about wraps it up. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch. I want to thank Alex for coming on as the inaugural guest. You should check out his book. It is really good. Uh, thank you so much to JT Fails for the theme music, and thank you for listening. 